Could general surgery be a dying art? Does reimbursement have anything to do with it? You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. George Sheldon. Dr. Sheldon is a professor of surgery at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and chaired the Department of Surgery from 1984 until 2001. He has been president of all the major surgical organizations, including president of the American College of Surgeons, president of the American Surgical Association, and the American Board of Surgery. Dr. Sheldon is currently editor-in-chief of eFACS, e-facs.org, the web portal of the American College of Surgeons, and is director of the Health Policy Institute of the American College of Surgeons. Today we're discussing the impact of reimbursement on physician shortages. Welcome, Dr. Sheldon. Thanks for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. My pleasure. In a recent commentary, The Impending Disappearance of the General Surgeon, which appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Dr. Joseph Fisher wrote, quote, Surveys of surgeons indicate that the single most important factor in deciding on early retirement, practice restriction, and career change is the unfavorable work environment. The environment has been fostered primarily by commoditization of medicine, which includes reimbursement, managed care, with its ever-changing rules, and professional liability. Dr. Sheldon, how do you feel about what Dr. Fisher has written? Well, Dr. Fisher is a very close friend of mine, and in fact, he acknowledges some of our conversations in that article at the end. I think he's right on all of it. Obviously, that's a focused article, and I think there's other things involved in the issue of the shortage, but I think those are all important. He he has been a careful student of the reimbursement cycle for many, many years and is very familiar with it. I think the methodology, the Shao Stason that started, uh, general surgeons were not part of that initial panel. The resource-based relative value scale has been a problem ever since it started. I think this was added to a great deal by the Balanced Budget Act that assumed that we would save money by putting a freeze on it. Frankly, doctors are not as good with business as our insurance companies in hospitals, so that most of the rate decrease in reimbursement for service has uh, fallen heavier on physicians than it has on other parts of the industry, if you want to call it that. And you have to remember that the the corporatization is really something that has happened. Uh, Paul Starr's book in 1983, The Social Transformation of American Medicine, really predicted this as it has come out. So I think all these are factors. I think having said that the environment's a problem, I think most of us would do the same career. The pleasures of being able to take care of patients with the skills that you have as a surgeon are, I believe, unequaled in any other field. All of us really enjoy what we're doing. We we get tired of filling out forms. We get tired of having to argue with insurance companies, some of which had some automatic rejection defaults built into the billing. And the malpractice thing is still an absolute mess, but probably won't get changed as long as the trial lawyers have such a representation in the Senate. So those are problems that are there, but some of them are societal problems. The liability issue is actually higher for consumer goods than it is for medical services. 
and it's it's part of this mindset of our society today, and that's maybe taking too far away from it. But I think Dr. Fisher is right. All those are contributing factors in the career issues. Now, having said all that, there's things that keep coming into the lay literature, especially about people choosing careers because of higher reimbursement. Many studies have not shown that to be a factor. I I think that uh, when I talk to students and people about it, they have seen the work and the need to be accurate and everything that, say, a neurosurgeon or a cardiothoracic surgeon does whose reimbursement is a little higher than some of the other fields, and ask them, okay, you can make more money doing that. Would you do it? Many many of them do not see that as a life that they could be happy with. So they're choosing a lifestyle over a compensation. Oh, in part, not just a lifestyle. It's just a specialty. Not all of us are equipped to do every specialty in terms of our own emotional makeup and stuff. I don't have value judgments on this, and I think it's been a mistake to try to put value judgments on it. On the other hand, I think decreasing reimbursement and the other things, those have all occurred in an environment where overhead of running an office and paying malpractice is going up all the time, and that makes it difficult. What is happening is that many places around the country, you find especially general surgeons starting to work for hospitals who will do their billing and cover their malpractice and things like that. Now that has, as Dr. Fisher mentioned in his article, the rural health area is an area we're studying in the Health Policy Institute. We have a number of counties in North Carolina where either there are no general surgeons now or fewer than there were five years ago. And there's a lot of reasons for it, but some of them are the ones mentioned in his article. A lot of it comes to the need to have an equipage in the local hospital that allows you to provide the care that you were trained to do. I mean, not all of them have laparoscopic capabilities, so there's a whole bunch of issues that overlap in this. And the problem, though, is that people keep seizing on one or two factors, and that's uh, usually, like most things, a little more complicated than that. The income-generating issue, though, where you're seeing that you can barely keep your office open because of all these things is an issue, and many people resolve it by doing that or doing a local Tenants. I'd like to welcome those who have just joined us at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and my guest today is Dr. George Sheldon, Professor of Surgery at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Director of Health Policy of the American College of Surgeons. Today we're discussing the effect of reimbursement on physician career choice. You've done a great job outlining the problems. What do you see as solutions, and what's been done so far to correct some of those rural physician shortages you just mentioned in North Carolina? Thank you. One of the things that is, I think, incompletely understood by many people is that there really are two routes to providing a physician or surgeon to a community, the country, the county, a city, et cetera. One route is going through medical schools, go to medical school, and then you finish with an MD, but you are not able to be licensed for at least one more year when you do graduate medical education. But states have developed medical schools in order to try to get the people that live in that state to go to medical school and stay there and practice medicine. The belief that we were going to have too many doctors by 2000 led to a voluntary freeze on the number of medical schools in the country. There were 126 medical schools, and there was no growth in them at all. In fact, there was one fewer one because Oral Roberts closed. 125 medical schools. Well, 
with the realization only about four years ago that we were going to be in this shortfall, medical schools who are closely associated in their professional organizational life with the Association of American Medical Colleges developed a workforce center and began to advocate increasing the number of graduates. Now, that's had a very profound and salutary effect. There's going to be probably somewhere between 13 and 19 percent more doctors turned out by about 2012, and with probably 13 new campuses. Some of these are being done like our dean, Dr. Bill Roper, here in North Carolina, has uh, developed a so-called mini medical school satellite campus, which we will have in Charlotte, North Carolina. It will train 50 more students. And many have followed that route, which is a very good way to go. Others have been in states in the southwest and the west, which uh, have been more recent in population growth to where they have many fewer medical schools west of the Mississippi than east of it. So a new pipeline of medical students is going to be coming out within five to ten years. But how do you keep them in the rural areas? Are you going to tie scholarship to service, kind of like the military does, where you get your education, but you have to do a payback? Well, actually, that's available in many states, including here, and there's also the Health Service Corps. That's a very good way to do it. Some towns have done it on their own, and there's, on a state basis, there are programs like this in existence right now. But Part of it is that in the perfect storm analogy that I'm using, so we've corrected that part of the problem, but now we have not increased the number of finishing residency positions in general surgery since 1980. Now, there have been a few more, but not many. We can turn out all the medical students in the world, but if we don't have residency positions for them to go into, they obviously will not be able to provide the care. Meanwhile, Medicare law passed under Lyndon Johnson They tied graduate medical education funding to Medicare law. That was what was frozen by the Balanced Budget Act in 1996. So we have the perfect storm of a voluntary freeze on number of medical school positions for many years. And then in 1996, we froze it at the graduate medical education level. So we really put a throttle on it. Now, I would say, as I've tried to indicate, that the medical school thing has opened up. They've recognized it and they've adapted. This has not happened through the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education yet, but a lot of it is due because Congress continues to freeze the number of positions paid for under Medicare. So that needs to be attacked and we need to expand those and we need to allow hospitals to provide application for more positions, and these need to be funded by, if not the Medicare law, through some initiatives that have occurred in some states like Utah. Pardon my cynicism, but do we reach a point at which it's kind of like baseball expands and suddenly you get these real weak teams? How far can we expand the number of medical school positions? How far can we increase the number of residencies before either the teaching quality starts to go down or the quality of the applicant starts to wane? There's only 10 to 15 percent more applicants probably of the same quality that we're able to get right now. We have been very blessed by the fact that women have come into medicine. I predict that we would not have kept up as well as we have. There were two women in my class in medical school in 1961. There's over 15 schools now have more women than men. 
Surgery has been a little slower getting women to come into it than to some others, but this year 44% of all first-year residents in general surgery are women. So it's about there. It's getting there, and that will help a lot. Now, having said that, the centennial generation or whatever you want to call it, the practice patterns of women in terms of number of hours worked and things like that or working for, say, a corporation or a hospital provides fewer hours of service than men. And this is not meant to be a gender comment. It's been a studied fact. Point being, uh, that's a confounding factor in trying to figure out how many you need is uh, it's unlikely that they will be able to get from them the number of hours that a lot of people put in. Uh, Probably not the best thing in the world, but that historically been done by doctors. So that needs to be factored in, too, if we can figure out a way to do it. I think it's hard to know how far we can expand. But on the other hand, the alternative is to keep recruiting people from countries that probably need the doctors worse than we do. I'd like to thank you so much for being my guest. And we've been discussing reimbursements as well as other factors affecting the workforce in medicine today. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with our promo code RADIO and receive six months of free streaming audio. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I wish you good day and good health.